trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. By the way, happy Thanksgiving to those of you who uh, celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. Thought I'd start off since uh, this is going to be kind of a long weekend for a lot of folks. Myself included. (laughs) Anyway, um, you know, I I was reflecting. I, I came across a newspaper column I wrote. I guess this was back in 2016. This was for Thanksgiving 2016. And if you remember, that was an unusually tense period of time. Why? Well, because this Yahoo by the name of Donald J. Trump had got himself elected president of the United States. And let's just say Thanksgiving 2016 was pretty strained by the people who were very anti-Trump versus the people who were pro-Trump. Now, I feel pretty safe because I don't think I really fell into any of those categories. But at that time, I knew there was a lot of tension. I knew that uh, it was going to be strained conversation in most homes. <laughs> and I think it's probably about the same. I don't think it's gotten any better. In fact, if anything, the situation is uh, several orders of magnitude worse than it was in 2016. And I think we all know people who have severed ties with family or friends or even business relations over perceived political differences. So in the interest of not furthering those divides, I thought I would encourage you to take part in a little thought experiment about feeling genuine gratitude. And this is just to to take your mind off the world of politics for a few minutes and to to think about the things for which you are truly grateful. Now, I know some people, oh boy, here we go, the touchy-feely part of, of the program. But I want to share with you a couple things that I'm very grateful for. And I don't think I would add a whole lot to, to, to what I had listed back in 2016 here, except with the addition of maybe some grandkids. But um, I started out with thankfulness for my family and the roller coaster ride that comes along with them. Now, I hope that makes sense because I don't want I, I to give the impression, and I, and I know social media does this, and probably, you know, the fact that, well, he sounds like he's got his stuff together. None of this should in any way lead you to believe that, uh, oh, yeah, I've got things figured out. My life is really, really top-notch, and that's why I'm here to tell you how to make sense out of yours. No. I'm an average guy. I have, uh, I have the same problems, in some cases more of them, in some cases less of them, you know, depending on, on what area of life. But I'm grateful for those uh, those ups and downs. You know, the challenges of providing a stable home to our children. There's only two of them left home now. That's a never-ending source of joy and alarm for both uh, Becky and for me. And like most folks, we stress over deficits of money and time. And we can't really keep up with the mounting responsibilities of, of uh, parenting, which is, of course, the only full-time job you truly cannot quit. But I'm grateful for the things that are happening in my kids' lives that are good, as well as the challenges. Whether it's in schoolwork, whether it's in personal growth, I'm thankful that my kids get to struggle and learn. Because really, that's, that's where the growth takes place. It's the uncomfortable part. I'm thankful that my kids 
understand that I'm fallible, yet they still choose to love me. And sometimes they actually seek me out for support and advice. After all, they make me appreciate just how much I owe my own parents for their selflessness and their patience as I was trying to figure things out. I'm grateful for friends. I'm especially grateful for the friends I have who who love me and stay my friend despite our differences of mind. Some people think that's that's not possible. Well, how could you have friends that don't have, you know, every little detail in common? Well, because I'm I'm not really interested in, in going out and finding clones of me so we can all sit around politely agreeing with each other. See, it's these differences that have enlarged my understanding by allowing me to see the world through the eyes of my friends, my acquaintances, coworkers, you know, people, people that I meet who don't necessarily see eye to eye with me. Now, I'm also very grateful for my critics and my detractors. In fact, this is going to sound weird. Sometimes I'm a little bit disappointed that I don't have more of them because that means I'm not reaching all the people that I could be reaching. And it's not that I'm trying to irritate the maximum amount of people. It's just opposition is a good indicator of where you're having impact. And the thing I'm grateful for in terms of critics and detractors is these are the folks who will hold my feet to the fire and point out the areas where either I've gone astray or where I need improvement. Now, does this mean they're always right? No, not always, but they'll they'll tell me things that my friends won't. So, (laughs) you know, I can appreciate that. Even if it's a, a bit embarrassing to say, oh, well, yep, looks like I need to fix that. It's my critics and my detractors who've helped me to examine and refine my own thoughts through our discussions, through our interactions, and in in turn, that's provided a lot of uh, much-appreciated color and depth to my worldview. Now, I'm thankful for the things in my life that require real effort, like paying for a tank of gas. Okay, I I made that one up between now and 2016. I think we were paying a lot less for gas back then. But I'm thankful for, for instance, for the difficulty that accompanies physical conditioning and the labor that's involved in learning new skills or new ideas. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty good when I can see a lower readout on the bathroom scale. I genuinely feel good to own knowledge that I've actually worked to understand. And I'm really thankful for the things that remind me to be more humble and to more fully appreciate what I have. This is probably just the product of getting older and maturing, but... The older I get, the more I recognize the power of valuing the people in my life and just how the material things don't seem to matter as much. I need less material stuff as I go through life. Now, in my article in 2016, since I was living in southern Utah at the time, I spent some time expressing gratitude for the incredible scenic beauty of the place I call home. And when I look back over the list of some of the different reasons why I considered southern Utah you know, such an incredible place. I had to think back to the first time I visited there. I think I was eight years old. And I never forgot the wonder of Red Rock Country, the hoodoos of Bryce Canyon. And everything that I've experienced since then just has helped me develop more appreciation. I mean, I'm looking at uh, the Zion National Park or Snow Canyon or Toro Weep or Capitol Reef, Cedar Mountain, Pine Valley, the Arizona Strip. That's a lot of beautiful areas. Now, I'm also living in a beautiful area right now in southern Idaho. Not quite as spectacular as color country, but it's, it's beautiful in its own right. 
And one thing that I've noticed is I have a lot of magnificent people for whom I need to be thankful because uh, I have had the chance to rub shoulders with an amazing array of people from every walk of life. And that includes, you know, professors, surgeons, educators, artists, business owners, farmers, ranchers, just an incredible host of genuinely good people. And how do I know they're genuinely good? Probably because I've had the chance to see a lot of these folks pull together and rally around people in need or rally in times of disaster to help one another. And this is something I I noticed in southern Utah. I feel it to where I live in southern Idaho, where there are problems within our communities. You will find, if you look, there is no shortage of kindness and generosity where it really counts. I'm very grateful for friends and loved ones who've come and gone in my life. Every one of them's left a mark on my life. Every one of them, in some way, helped to shape me into who I am today. Now, of course, not everybody's here anymore. Some of them live on in my heart and in my memories and remind me the most important things we will accomplish in our lives can best be measured in the lives that we've impacted positively. And believe it or not, I'm actually grateful for the sorrow that I have felt when friends like this have departed because that that sorrow affirms, first of all, the authenticity of my love and friendship with them. But it's also sharpened my desire to to demonstrate appreciation to the people still around me, hopefully on a daily basis. So there's this list of just a few of the things for which I'm thankful. And the one thing I would ask you to consider is how, did you notice how not one of those items are dependent upon any particular political outcome? So this is a gratitude-based exercise that I would recommend for anybody who wants to sail clear of the emotional doldrums in which a lot of people are currently stranded or to to steer clear of the drama which beckons, you know, like the the siren song. Yeah, we need to to focus on on what is good. We need to focus on uh, the things that we're grateful for. And when you start looking and you start enumerating some of those things, you'd be surprised. It's not always the real obvious stuff. Yeah, I'm thankful for my big fat stacks of $100 bills and my Bentley and my my butler, my 30,000 square foot mansion. I'm really thankful for that. Oh, yes. And our beloved presidents. Nah. Be thankful for the people around you. Be thankful for the relationships. Be thankful for the impact that people have had on you and that you are having on others. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got a couple of just banger articles that I want to share with you today. Now that I've got the thankful stuff out of my system, I'm still thankful, just... Got a couple other things I'd like to move on to here. So here's a loaded question for you, but I'm going to throw it out there. Is is someone manipulating our emotions for their own agenda? Is someone trying to get you worked up and in a state of agitation, they're telling you who or what you should hate? This to me is the, the key question. Because right now, and, and I'll just give you the example, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has got so many people just wound up. And, and I mean, they're just, they're insistent. 
People have to take a side. You must agree. You must think this way or you're that. It's so reminiscent of some of the hysteria that followed after 9-11, particularly in the lead up to the war in Iraq. It just seems like we're, we're talking ourselves into a, we're talking ourselves into a fight. But it all starts with the manipulation of public opinion. And C.J. Hopkins, who knows a thing or two about what it's like to have the heavy boot of the state pressing down on him because he's expressed unpopular opinions, particularly in Germany, calling out the German government specifically for their COVID restrictions. C.J. Hopkins has written about the hate machine. This is clever, but I think he makes a very good point. He says, I think there's something wrong with my hate machine. I've got it turned up to 10, but I'm still not feeling it. The hate, the murderous, self-righteous hate, the mindlessly fanatical hate. I set the dial to Palestinians, nothing. No reaction whatsoever. So I set it to Israelis, again, nothing. I just can't seem to get my hate up. It's embarrassing. Maybe there are some pills that'll help. Seriously, he says, this is interfering with both my social and professional life. I need to get my hate up somehow. I've tried everything I could possibly think of. I tried reading nothing but news about Israel's ongoing liquidation of Gaza. I stared at the pictures of dead and horribly mutilated Palestinian children, thousands of them. Killed, torn to pieces, residential neighborhoods reduced to rubble, whole families crushed under tons of concrete. I told myself over and over that they were terrorists or the children of terrorists or they voted for terrorists or they were anti-Semites, human animals, the children of darkness. It didn't work. I tried reading nothing but news about the Hamas attack on October 7th. The murder of families, the wanton slaughter. I stared at the pictures of the blood-smeared bedrooms, the footage of the executions. I read the messages that people sent to their loved ones before they were shot to death. I told myself over and over that they were fascists, occupiers, colonizers, Zionazis. I told myself that they deserved what they got. Nothing. No arousal whatsoever. I checked the connections on my hate machine. They all seemed fine. So I tried rebooting it. Twice. Nope. That didn't work either. He says, so finally I called the hate corporation, but I couldn't get through to a hate representative because of an unusually high volume of callers. So... He says, apparently I'm not the only one with this dysfunction. Now, that was kind of reassuring because, frankly, I've been feeling so left out. All the really cool people are grooving on hate. Seriously, check the internet. It's like a 24-hour Roman orgy of hate in which I'm unable to participate, apparently. C.J. Hopkins says, I'm sorry for the whining. It's unseemly, I know, and I'm fairly sure my inability to achieve and maintain a satisfactory tumescence or protuberance of hate is not my hate machine's fault. I have the latest model with all the new features, and other people's hate machines are working just fine. And so he asked, how's yours doing? Are you feeling the hate? Are those you hate the embodiment of evil? They're liars, aren't they? Liars and murderers, genociders, Nazis subhuman scum. Everything they say is a lie. Everything they do and are is wicked. They cannot help it. They were born that way. They need to be wiped off the face of the earth. They need to be eradicated, don't they? They're never going to change their ways. Making peace with them is not an option. It's us or them. They, the others, and all their issue need to be defeated, vanquished, erased, exterminated. This is no time for compassion or pity. They, the others, have no morals or ethics or simple human empathy, so we can't afford to have any either. 
None of them are innocent. None of them are civilians. All of them, men, women, and children, are soldiers in the army of evil. They're murderers, so we have to be murderers. They're liars, so we need to become liars. Truth is for children. This is war. We need to kill and kill and kill and celebrate killing and swim in their blood and defile their corpses. Uh, The others, our enemies. He says, well, what do you know? Oh, it appears my hate machine is functioning properly after all. Wow, that feels so much better. I guess I, I just needed to relax. Let go. Stop thinking so much about what's right and wrong and just let my hate do what it wants. Seriously, he says, I'm not kidding, folks. I haven't had hate like this for years. I'm ready to join that Roman orgy of hatred. All I need to do now is pick a side. Now, I get it. This is this is not only a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's also a little, uh, little on the risque side there, but his point is so well made. Notice how it could apply to either side. Well, you just got to pick a side and let that hate go. C.J. Hopkins is, he's right on the money. And and by the way, his analogy with, well, you know, I'm having hate dysfunction. And for some reason, I just, I just can't seem to get my patriotic priapism going here, man. What the heck is wrong with me? Well, keep in mind that uh, the, the uh, media form of Viagra, for those experiencing hate dysfunction, is mainstream media. The more you consume, the more likely your uh, hate is likely to last longer than four hours. Now, how do you uh, immunize yourself against this? What's the, what's the equivalent of an intellectual cold shower? Like anybody would want to take that. <laughs> well, okay, first of all, you don't have to go jump into a cold shower. You don't have to, you know, take saltpeter or whatever, you know, to, to control your hateful urges. I think the most important thing is be aware when mainstream media or corporate media or however you want to call it, when the official organs of those in power, when their news organs are preaching fear and anger, do you recognize when your chain is being pulled? Notice I'm not asking you to take a a side here. I trust that with the right information or with enough information, you will choose and you will side, you know, with what, uh, what, matters most to you. But if you're taking your cues from what's being reported through the mass media, there's a better than not chance that you're being manipulated and uh, and you're being led along. And, and it, it starts with all the atrocity stuff. Look, I don't know how to say this without, without sounding at least a little bit callous, but there are conflicts that are going on all over this world. And just for instance, the the fight in uh, Yemen, what is it, the the Houthis uh, versus uh, Saudi-backed, or the, uh, I can't remember if the Houthis or Saudi, I don't think the Houthis are the ones backed by the Saudis, but basically my, my point is simply this, people are being killed in military conflicts in horrible ways, including children, including innocent people all over the world, but the press, the mass media focuses primarily on this conflict or that conflict. Do you remember the outrage about, oh, certain war atrocities and war crimes taking place in Ukraine? What happened to all of that? Why isn't that conflict front and center anymore? I know, that's a bit of a loaded question, too. Well, it's because uh, (laughs) it's becoming pretty hard to deny that 
Ukraine is in is in big trouble. Have you seen the video? Have you seen of of the latest recruits and they're being sung to by some uh, performer, some some uh, you know celebrity singing to them? First of all, the age of these recruits. There's not a guy in that crowd who looks to be under 45, maybe 50 years old. I, I'm being generous here. These are old men, and the looks on their faces. They're not enthusiastic in the least to be there. But the most sobering part about uh, that image is the reason that they're there is because all of the young men are gone. Tragic doesn't even begin to cover what has happened to the population of Ukraine. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I hope you enjoyed C.J. Hopkins' article. I've got a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for November 22nd, 2023. Wow, 60 years since uh, John F. Kennedy was was killed. Kind of an interesting and not uh, not particularly... uh, Happy day to, to be remembering. So let's do it. Awkward subjects are on the table for the moment. Let's talk about sex. Came across a very interesting article from Heather Carson on intellectualtakeout.org. And just the title alone grabbed me because it was like, oh, this is going to get some people's backs. I could just see backs stiffen up as I say this. Sex is a community matter. People, what? What do you mean? That's a private thing and needs to be kept in private. I want you to hear how Heather Carson talks about this, though. And look, there's a time when I would have absolutely said, no, it's not, man. What you do in private is your own business. I still believe that to a large extent. But I want you to hear the case that, uh, that Heather Carson makes about how sexual behavior has impact beyond just the two people who happen to be engaging in it. She says it's more than 60 years since the sexual revolution of the 60s swept across the nation, removing sexual barriers and changing beliefs around sex. Now, these days, people have accepted the idea that what two consenting adults do sexually is their own business. And the idea that sex is for forming families through the avenue of marriage, it seems downright archaic. Now, she does acknowledge marriage itself is in decline. The percentage of individuals between the ages of 25 and 54 who are not married is at an all-time high of 47%. So there's very little, if any, societal pressure to get married before becoming sexually active. To stay married to one person or even to stay faithful to that one person. Even so, Heather Carson says marriage still remains a life goal for the majority of adults, about 58% with an additional 27% unsure whether they want to get married. Now, the goal of the sexual revolution was to sever the relationship between sex and marriage, to deny sex as a primary way human bond, humans bond with one another, and to devalue sex to just another bodily function such as eating and drinking. Society seems to have decided that what two consenting adults do with one another sexually is their business alone, but Heather Carson says sex is, in fact, everyone's business. 
Now here, listen to how she makes the case for this. She says, human beings are social animals. We do not live separated from one another. We live in groups, families, communities, and as sex is still the main way new humans are brought into the human-animal community, our individual sexual practices matter to that community. Now, she says, I'm not only suggesting this because of the possibility of unwanted pregnancies and children. We can all agree that unwanted children or a community matter. Someone must care for those children, if not their biological parents. But she says sex and procreation were successfully severed with the advent of birth control. Now, there were still unplanned pregnancies, of course, and while pro-choicers use the marginal cases of rape and when the mother's life is at stake to say that abortion is necessary, the primary use of abortion is for birth control. Maternal or fetal health only accounts for 12% of abortions while not being ready in a variety of ways constitutes the reason for the majority of abortions. So, in a community, sex functions as one of the main ways human beings pair bond. Oxytocin is a hormone present in both men and women that promotes bonding in both sexes. In women, it's responsible for regulating labor and delivery, and it's released during sex as well as during breastfeeding of a child. In men, oxytocin regulates testosterone and is also released during sex. Oxytocin is commonly caused, or is commonly called rather, the love hormone because its primary purpose is to promote bonding in humans. Now, Heather Carson says our bodies are made to bond during sex. Our bodies want to bond during sex. What happens when we deny our bodies that bond? What happens when we have sex with someone casually or have multiple sex partners and are very promiscuous? Well, she says sexually promiscuous behavior is considered high-risk behavior for a reason by doctors and medical health professionals. Promiscuity is linked to higher levels of anxiety, depression, sexually transmitted diseases, and cancers related to those STDs, as well as increases in substance abuse. Heather Carson says the ability to bond is key to all human relationships, and therefore key to healthy societal functioning. Consistently behaving in ways that deny the physiological response to sex will break one's ability to bond. By engaging in this kind of behavior, one must engage in some amount of disassociation or compartmentalization of one's sexual behavior, going against the human instinct to bond. Hookup culture tries to provide sex without any strings attached, but she says studies find that this simply isn't a goal that's attainable. Heather Carson says strings get attached because that's exactly what our body naturally does. So what are these strings? Well, these strings are the basic foundation of human bonding and the ties that bind marriages, families, communities, and societies together. Trying to break these strings only breaks the foundation of society. Sex that denies the formation of a bond just makes no sense to the larger society when the larger consequences of sex are so huge. Heather Carson says, given what we know about how humans function, the lifelong commitment of marriage provides both the safety and security needed to allow the natural bond to form between two people who are sexually united. It also provides the context needed for secure attachments to form in children who will then take that emotionally healthy foundation forward to form their own secure marital bond as adults. Psychological, emotional, and spiritual health begets the same. Notice she's not thumping the Bible to make this case. 
Heather Carson says, if we want to undo many of the devastating effects of the sexual revolution, we must accept the physical limitations of how we're made. We must reject the lie that humans can engage in promiscuity without severe emotional and societal consequences. Sex does not just affect those engaged in it. Sex is a community matter. Now, I know there are those who will push back on this and say, now, Brian, it's all about individuals. And I, to a point, I agree, but at the same time, those individuals make up the individual threads that make up the fabric of society. A few corrupted threads here and there, yeah, the, the, the integrity of society still is going to be mostly intact. But the more of those threads individually that become corrupted, the weaker and more threadbare society becomes, the more likely society is to start to tear or break. I just think this is just common sense. And I'm sorry, I, I know I sound like some old moralizing dude here, but look, there was a time when I was was much less concerned about, yeah, wow, what what people want to do, they can they can just do. And they're really, you know, the consequences are their own. That's only true if they keep their behavior to themselves. But where, where there are kids involved, um, and, and particularly look at the efforts to sexualize children right now. Look at all the efforts of these these uh, LGBT plus. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I feel like it's being unfair to to members of the LGBT community who are not into grooming kids. When when you look at some of these activists who are coming forward and trying to groom kids, trying to get them to question and explore and and uh, deviate, you know, in terms of their sexuality. It's crazy stuff. And I think back to, you know, J.D. Unwin and his uh, study released in 1935. I think it was called Sex and Society. This was a British anthropologist. I think I've told you about him. He studied 85 or 86 different civilizations, big to small, primitive to sophisticated, religious, non-religious, 85 different civilizations he studied And the conclusion was the same in every civilization where pleasure-seeking became their primary drive. In other words, where they abandoned their mores and their standards of requiring, you know, self-control, meaning you don't engage in premarital sex, you don't uh, take the chance of fathering kids out of wedlock, and instead you divert that uh, procreative energy in, in constructive ways science, art, architecture, and so forth. In every case where societies went the pleasure route, oh, we want to chase pleasure, those civilizations declined every single time. Now, he wasn't coming at it from a biblical point of view, too. He was just simply looking at, okay, what happens when society goes this way? In other words, he wasn't moralizing when he pointed this out. And and yet, uh, you know, when, when society makes sex, it's God. When it makes pleasure, it's number one pursuit. Should we really be surprised when people start to violate vows? Because, uh, you know, something's inconvenient. Well, I'm, I'm trying to find as much pleasure as I possibly can. And these marriage vows, well, they're getting in my way. So how could we blame somebody for walking away from their family? Right? If pleasure really is the most important thing or the, the primary reason for life. Lots of reasons to exercise self-control. I like the old adage of before you tear a fence down, you might want to ask somebody who came before you, hey, why was that fence put up in the first place? This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I know you're thinking, he's all over the road today. Yeah, it probably is true. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of really great material out here. I'm trying to find stuff that's thought-provoking and that will help uh, expand your view of what's going on without appealing to your anger or your fear or dread about what's taking place. Got a couple of articles I want to share in this final segment here. I, I want to start with the article of the day. This is from Margaret Anna Alice, and I, I just appreciate what a thoughtful writer she is. And if you haven't checked out her substack, Mar- Margaret Anna Alice Through the Looking Glass, go to margaretannaalice.substack.com. I've got a link, actually, to, to this article in my show notes. But she offers 12 communication tips to foster meaningful dialogue without ruining Thanksgiving. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I thought that uh, she had some really great ideas here. She says, if you're dreading the prospect of being stuck around the Thanksgiving table, chit-chatting with narrative believers, here are 12 communication tips I've wrung out of my own often-failed experiments to awake the mentisided. Oh, I love that word. Once you've absorbed them, you may actually look forward to trying them out during Thanksgiving and any other situations where you can enjoy substantive exchanges with normies. Do you understand what she's saying? This is not about, uh, here's how to crush your enemies at the Thanksgiving dinner table. This is how to talk to people who have been duped and brainwashed by the narrative. So 12 meaningful communication tips to foster, or 12 communication tips rather, to foster meaningful dialogue. Now this may seem pretty simple, but number one is ask them to share their perspective and listen Make it clear you're not an adversary, but you're a fellow traveler trying to understand reality as clearly as possible, and you'd appreciate their help in doing so. She goes into some great detail on these. She says, try a conversation starter related to a pertinent news item. Now, that doesn't mean go right for the latest, you know, Trump (laughs) reports or anything like that. Just find something that's interesting and, and see where it goes, but you're not there to conquer right? You're not there to to (laughs) crush your enemies. She recommends being respectful, practicing humility. She recommends expressing your feelings and not getting defensive, taking responsibility for your actions, apologizing if appropriate. I thought this was a good one. She says, you may feel like you have nothing to apologize for. That's understandable. But maybe you failed to see what the experience was like from their point of view, or perhaps you reacted defensively and said some things you now regret. I still maintain one of the most helpful questions that you can ask another person, and that is assuming that you're willing to actually listen to their answer. When you run into someone who is particularly passionate, you might stop and just ask him, you could even say, you seem very passionate about this. May I ask, what did you see or what did you experience that shaped your thinking or that's caused you to feel this way? Now, again, you're not asking, so what was it that broke your mind, weirdo? You're sincerely asking, what have, what have you seen that, that has uh, influenced you or causes you to, to think this way or embrace this worldview? And if you listen, more often than not, someone will share an experience with you and they'll, they'll share something with you and you'll realize they're not just making this up because, well, I woke up this morning and I wanted to be an unreasonable authoritarian, you know, authoritarian dictator and control everybody around me. 
That's not what motivates them. More often than not, they've seen something that reflected legitimate pain, and that's what they're responding to. Now, does that mean then you better change your mind? No, just it's you're, you're trying to understand where they're coming from. I like uh, this this suggestion too. Margaret and Alice's don't tell them what what to think. Help them to rediscover their innate curiosity and analytical abilities. She actually uses a quote from Alexandra Trentfer. The best teachers are those who show you where to look but don't tell you what to see. She also suggests make the conversation fun and leaven it with humor. I agree. If you can laugh at it, it's good. Number 10, know when to pull back. If someone's showing visible signs of discomfort, anger, or resentment, pull back. You might need to say the words. If it starts to turn into an argument, you might just want to say, I love you more than I need to be right. Why don't we put this subject aside and let's move on to something else? Well, that sounds like I'm running away from it. No, that sounds like you're making the decision to put the relationship above the need to be right. You do see the difference, right? Number 11, she says, ask for advice. If they shut you down, ask if there's anything you could have done differently that would have made them more open to listening, watching, or reading something that you wanted to share. And last, she says, ask if they would be willing to watch one short video and discuss it with you, if they don't feel overloaded, right? She says, I'm going to focus on videos because they're the most accessible. They can be watched. They can be discussed discussed together. Rather, They require minimal time investment. And by the way, she's included some really great resources here. For those of you who wonder, you know, how can I, how can I approach these difficult subjects? Oh, what was the tweet that I saw? This was actually a recent article. Yeah, this popped up on my, my uh, Twitter feed this morning. And it's, it's a writer. I, I'm sorry, I can't find the tweet here. I'm looking, but um, it, was, it was dated today. And there was a writer talking about how not to kill grandma during the holiday season. Look, three years ago, that crap might have flown, but you're still beating the drum that, oh, yeah, man, you know, cold and flu season, you're going to kill grandma if you don't forego your family, you know, get-togethers. I guess my point is they're still beating the drum. Some people are. Just be aware. Don't, uh, Don't get pulled in. You can find a link to this Margaret Anna Alice article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. One other article that I wanted to, to share with you, this was the importance of standing up for the rights of others. And it's a, it's a blog entry from American Thinker by William Sullivan, americanthinker.com. First, they came for the smokers. This is so good because it'll help, it, it will help you appreciate that you really are not secure in your own freedoms unless you are willing to stand up for other people whose freedoms are under attack including people you may not agree with, like cigarette smokers. He talks about smoking bans. He talks about manufactured health panic and how, oh, this is just such a terrible thing. And yet, he reminds us about uh, the time when New York City was actually trying to prevent people from buying anything larger than a 16-ounce drink. Remember that? This wasn't that long ago. And one cigar-smoking gentleman told the camera crew, well, they're going to stop us from eating cake because America's an obese society. That's, a, you know, a lot of people think, well, yeah, why would they, could they outlaw us eating cake? But think about that. When uh, 
Bloomberg was the, the mayor of New York City. Did he not work to outlaw sugary drinks sold in anything larger than a 16-ounce container on the grounds that six out of ten New Yorkers were obese? Now, thankfully, Bloomberg's efforts were struck down by a Manhattan judge, but as Rick Berman of the Center for Consumer Freedom warned, you know, if you can dictate the size of drinks, you can dictate the size of a slice of pie. In other words, that list is only restricted by your imagination. So you got to push back. COVID tyranny didn't happen in a vacuum. Government didn't learn that it had such power overnight. By the way, speaking of New York State, I don't know if you saw this, but Governor Hochul is pushing. Um, there, is a, there is a policy that's being considered in New York where without due process, the state would have the power to come and forcibly quarantine you and take you, detain you, if you were suspected of having some illness or in in the name of some public health emergency. I mean, that's, this sounds like a good way to end up with dead people on all sides. But when's the last time you heard a state claim that kind of power? Oh yeah, we can, we can come and detain you and take you away on suspicion that you might be sick. That's a far cry from you're suspected of a crime. Probable cause exists. We have evidence, you know, a grand jury has issued an indictment you know, where there's due process. We're talking about something totally void of due process. So if you're in the habit of standing up for people or standing up for others' rights, you're not likely to get duped. If you just think, well, it doesn't affect me. I'm not a smoker. (laughs) I don't have a gas lawnmower. I'm not worried about them banning them in California or whatever. If you're not standing up for other people's rights that are being infringed, don't be surprised when your own rights are being infringed. And you look around and nobody appears to have your back. I guess it comes down to consistency. How consistent are you in living your principles? Now, how you answer that question, of course, is going to depend a lot on whether or not you know what those principles are in the first place. And I'm not trying to be mean or sound smug or superior when I say this, but I would wager that a very large majority of people really couldn't tell you if you were to press them and say so what exactly do you stand for they would most likely give you a pretty good impression of a brook trout at that point this is the brian hyde show